All right, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Before I get into Matthew 4, I'm going to read something from one of the hymns we just sang. Am I a soldier of the cross? And in verse 3, let me just read a couple of these verses. Verse 2, it says, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, while others fight to win the prize? And sailed through bloody seas. Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace? To help me on to God? When, I, when we sang those, I, I thought, man, that's, that's actually very, uh, very close to what we're going to be talking about today. Not exactly, but close. I think a lot of us have the understanding that we can just live our lives and do whatever we want and just make a confession and then find ourselves in heaven one day. Make a confession of faith. Hey, I made a confession of faith, so uh, I'm good. Now I can just kind of take my ease, go about things as though nothing mattered, as though I had no responsibilities. Um, do I have no foes to face? Is this friend a world, or is this world a friend to grace? I think that with our lives, we often find ourselves shouting the mantra, let's just eat and drink and be happy because we're just going to die tomorrow. Let's just do whatever we can just to, to feed these bodies, to, to satisfy my appetites, to do the things that I think are fun, and just you know, make my confession of faith in Christ and then just do whatever I want and then find myself in the eternal kingdom. But we find ourselves mistaken in that we say that. And Jesus taught us, gives us some direction here in Matthew chapter 4. Let me just start with verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and when he had fasted for forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he, Jesus, answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now last week in the afternoon service, we talked about this, but I just felt like I felt the need to dive into this a little bit more and help us apply it a little bit better. Because there's a lot of implications here that really impact every single part of our lives in one way or another. Um, simply from this first temptation of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the fourth time we've, we've been teaching on the temptations of Jesus, and we are only in verse 4. Um, but I just I want you to see the implications here and what Jesus is leaving behind for us to feast on. Because he's saying, you know, Satan tempted him here. Just make some bread. Come on. Just make some bread. Is that a sin? No, that's not a sin. Bread making is not a sin. And I'm glad it's not because I like bread. <laughs> um, but that wasn't a temptation. We, taught, we, we started getting into this in the afternoon service last week, and I want to just show a little background here. So first and foremost, when Jesus enters the wilderness, he fasts for 40 days. He's emptying his body of every appetite, every, every longing desire, whether it's necessary or not necessary. He's not eating, he's not satisfying his flesh in any way 
for 40 days. And then Satan comes to him and he sees he's hungry and he says, make some bread, make some bread. Simple. I mean, you, I, would tell that to, I would have told that to Jesus too. <laughs> Why don't you just eat something? <laughs> You've been out here fasting for 40 days. Why don't you just eat something? You know, and I wouldn't have done it with any ill, Ill uh, content or, or a deception or ulterior motive. Just, hey, you're super hungry. You're about to die because of hunger and lack of food. Why don't you just eat something? And Satan says the same thing. And, uh, but the difference is, Satan, he knew full well who Jesus was and what his purpose was. We talked last week about how his first temptation was not make some bread. His first temptation was, if you are the Son of God, make some bread, perform this miracle. He's trying to get Jesus to not just question his identity, but let's, well, we'll get to the, to the root of it in a second here. Satan and Jesus both knew who Jesus was and why he was there. Now, Satan, he knew that Jesus was the Son of God. When he says, if you are the Son of God, it's not that Satan was doubting it. Jesus knew exactly also what he was getting into when he went into the wilderness. He knew he was going there to get weak and to get tempted. He knew that he must have endured and overcome temptation if he were to be a merciful and faithful high priest of the new covenant. Satan also knew that Jesus' coming to earth was a threat to his mission to keep people in bondage to sin in this earthly kingdom. And that's why Satan comes against Jesus if by means of even a sliver of hope that he can trip up the Son of God, he would be foolish not to act on it. He knew he was the Son of God and that there was probably not a chance that, that Jesus was going to fall to his temptations. But even with the sliver of hope that Satan had that Jesus would trip up, he's going to act on this. And certainly we know that Satan must give account to God for his actions. We see that detailed in the book of Job. So in some way, his actions here were approved by God in order for God's will to be performed in Christ. It's not, he, it's not that Satan is just running around like Rambo. He is, but he isn't. Um, doing his own thing, but not doing his own thing. The joke's on Satan because he thinks he's sovereign over his will, but really, God is still sovereign over all things. But Satan comes to Jesus here, not tempting Jesus to eat something, not thinking that he's going to trip up Jesus and thinking that he to get getting Jesus to believe he's somebody he's not. What Satan was attempting to get Jesus to do was to act in self-will. And this is the implication that touches every single part of your and my life. Self-will. Look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 32 is where we will start in this chapter. John chapter 4, verse 32. Again, Satan was attempting to get Jesus to act in self-will. To distract him from the will of God. And so in John chapter 4, verse 32, Jesus says, and this is right after Jesus confronts the woman at the well, um, and he shares the gospel with her. They're having this great conversation. She believes him to be the Son of God. She goes back into town to tell the town everything that she just saw Jesus do and say. And, um, and then in verse 31, it says, In the meantime... Jesus' disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. 
I mean, originally they left Jesus alone because they went into town to go get some food. And then now they're, you know, Jesus then by himself has this conversation with this woman at the well in Samaria. And uh, she leaves and the disciples come back on the scene. It's almost, it almost kind of works like a play. And the disciples urged him saying, hey, we got some food, eat. We've been traveling, time to eat. It's dinner time. But in verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? So they're confused. What, you have food from somewhere else? Did you stop at McDonald's without us or something? Or what happened? Did somebody else bring something by? Um, Jesus said to them in verse 34, My food is to do, to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ready and white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Um, and many of the Samaritans of the city believed on him because of the word that the woman who testified, he told me whatever I did. So that goes back to that story, but we're not going to sit on that real quick right now. Um... Well, I'm not going to keep going into the, to the rest of those verses. But the, the, the main portion of this passage, verses 34 through 38, teach us something about Jesus' piercing mindset, one-track mind, tunnel vision. He could have eaten what the disciples brought to him. No big deal. We need to eat. Eating is not a sin unless you're... Doing it to gluttony and excess. There would, have not, there would have been nothing wrong with him to just eat something. But Jesus is focused. He is determined. He knows what his will is to do on this earth. What the will of God is for him to do on this earth. And there's nothing that is going to distract him. His appetites aren't always... Our appetites are not always telling us to do something we shouldn't do. Sometimes they do. Most of the time they're not. We're hungry at breakfast, we're hungry at lunch, we're hungry at dinner. You know, we want a drink, we want, you know, to go outside and get some fresh air. We have all sorts of different things that we do that are not necessarily wrong. And this would not have been something wrong for him. But Jesus is showing us his determination in doing God's will. Jesus is told by his disciples to eat something, but Jesus responds to his disciples similarly to how he responds to Satan. He's just, he essentially tells them, I eat differently than you. Okay, you, I'm not here to satisfy my belly. You're trying to satisfy the belly. I'm not here trying to satisfy the belly. That's not my prerogative. That's not my focus in this world, to satisfy the desires of this flesh, whether sinful or not sinful. That's not my focus. That doesn't satiate the day for me, going from one thing to the next, just trying to build up myself. I'm not going to be distracted by this trifle bread. He's in the middle of ministering to this woman and this town. He will not be distracted from his gospel mission 
simply to eat. And this is a similar thought process in Matthew chapter 16. Look at there real quick. Matthew chapter 16. Starting in verse 21. It says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that this should happen to you. But he turned to him and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So let's just start here. Jesus, he taught them, he's been doing some stuff, and then he sits down and he takes some time. He doesn't, you know, you know Matthew doesn't lay out every single word that Jesus spoke here, but he just simply says, Jesus starts telling them about what's coming up ahead, what the will of God is for him. Jesus is telling his disciples what the will of the Father is for him to do. He must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer, and he must die. And he must be raised the third day. Peter doesn't like what he hears. He doesn't understand what he's hearing. He says, Jesus, no, that's not going to happen. We're not going to let that happen to you. Far be it, Lord, that this thing should happen. And Jesus says, get behind me. Not Peter. Get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Satan wants you to only be mindful of the things of this earth. Satan wants you to only be mindful of the things of the flesh, to spend all your waking moments thinking about how you can satisfy or build something in this life that won't be there when you're dead, that you won't be able to take anywhere when you die. All, you, all Satan, Satan doesn't need to demon-possess people. He's already got us when we're completely useless, wiping out our whole life, simply serving the flesh. Not even in a sinful way, just doing fun things, eating, drinking, being happy, doing things that make us happy. That's what Satan wants us to do, because if we do that, we're useless. Get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me, for you do not, you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now you might say... Well, this is Jesus. Jesus had this will from the Father that's unlike any will that anybody else have ever had. God is not wanting me to die and die for the sins of people. That was Jesus' job. But let us remember verse 24 when he says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now remember, Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. The cross was not a Christian symbol. The, the cross was not a religious symbol when Jesus is saying this. Because he hasn't died on the cross yet. The cross only becomes a religious symbol after Jesus dies on the cross and it becomes symbolic of our, the payment of our sins. But right now, it's not a religious symbol. So try to tr- mind track here. Let him take, deny himself. Okay, you're denying your life, your appetites, in a similar manner that Christ does because of your devotion to God, let him take up his cross. Everybody at this time knew what the cross was. An agonizing, sure death. 
death to self. Take up your personal cross. Understand that following me, Christ, it is your life. You are not, I am not my own. I am bought with a price. Therefore, let us glorify God with our bodies. Because I'm not my own anymore. God bought me. When I come to Christ, God redeemed me. He bought me out of slavery. Jesus tells us elsewhere that we're supposed to count the cost of discipleship. If you want to come follow Christ, this is what it looks like. This is what people don't want to accept, and therefore they're not really accepting Jesus when they make a confession of faith. Because if he, Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow after me. Lay your life behind you, your self-will. Lay aside your self-will and take upon yourself the will of God, the will of Christ. Unite your heart with him. Because you cannot expect that if you just simply make a confession of faith and then go about your business following Satan, who, like I said, what's, Satan, what's Satan's prerogative? To be mindful of the things of men. That's Satan's prerogative. Satan's prerogative is not even necessarily go and destroy your life with drugs, sex, and rock and roll. You know, that's, that's not even what the Bible says Satan's prior, prerogative is. Satan's prerogative is to get you to be mindful of the things of, the, of men. To just consume your, all of your life thinking about stuff here. Prioritizing stuff here. Jesus says, count the cost, people. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Lay aside your self-will. Take up the will of God and follow me. Then he says, he makes it even more powerful here in verse 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. If you wish to be mindful of the things of Satan, he says, if you desire to save your life, to keep your life close to you, to make, make all of these appetites and these desires and these, these things that we can accomplish, if that's what you want to live for, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it, okay? You might get all of that stuff that you sought after. A lot of people go after money and they get rich. But whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. He's not even telling you to go and be a martyr. He's saying to die to yourself. To die to self-will. Follow the will of God. He says, whoever does this, for my sake, will find it. And then he says in verse 26, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? And loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Is, is there anything here that you can accomplish that you can offer up to God and say, Hey, I'd like to make an exchange. I'd like to, you know, after I die, you can take these things and donate. I'll donate them to the ministry. Just accept me into your kingdom. No, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? You can't buy salvation. There's nothing worth exchanging And what exactly would you give up in order to be Christ's? Is there anything that you would not give up? Say, you know what? No, no, no. I don't want to give up 
this thing over here. I am not willing to leave that behind to follow Jesus. That's why Jesus says, count the cost. A fool will start building a house only to get halfway done and realize he doesn't have what it takes to finish it. No, at first he, he takes account to see. I mean, there's, there's builders in here. You know, Kirk, you had a big part in building this church. I mean, it would have been really embarrassing to get at this only for you to realize, uh-oh, we don't have anything to put on this back wall here, so that's just going to be just gonna be a nice nature view over here. <laughs> and we often do that with our life. We say, you know what, I'm, ex- I'm willing to accept the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to die for our sins, but I'm not willing to accept the will of God for me. I'm willing to realize the will of God for Christ, but I'm not willing to accept the will of God for me. Well, then you are left unfinished. What profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world, but loses his own soul? God doesn't care about what you've accomplished. You can't impress a God who accomplished everything you look up at in the night sky. That's not... What you're going to make in your life is not going to impress a God who did that. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus was teaching his disciples what he came to do. And he says, afterwards, if you want to follow me, deny yourself and set aside your own self-will. Your self-will. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Just like Jesus resisted the devil by refusing to listen to what Peter said. Peter said, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. The will of God is not going to happen. Which is what Jesus heard. Paul, I don't think, understood what he was saying necessarily. What he was implying. But Jesus would not hear it. Because, yeah, he didn't want to go through all that pain and agony. But what he wanted was the will of God. So he was not willing to accommodate Peter's charge. He said, get behind me, Satan. And the Bible thus says to you, if you will resist the devil, he will flee from you. He will flee from you. When something comes, when he presents you with something that will consume your attention, that will consume your affection, that will bring your affection from God and lay it here. Say, no. Get behind me, Satan. If you are only mindful of the things of the earth, then I will not be like that. I will mind the things of heaven. And in John chapter 6, verses 32 through 40, if you'd like to look, look there. He says, And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. So he's talking about manna. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. Then 
they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. But they were still thinking about the fluffy, yeasty stuff. Because they were, again, just thinking about their appetites, their physical needs, desires. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, but yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of of the Father who sent me, that all of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So this is even God's will for Jesus to this very day. Any of us who look up to him and claim him as their Lord and Savior, he will not reject you. He will not reject you. But you see the juxtaposition of Jesus and his prerogative and the prerogative of the people that he's talking to. All they wanted was to fill their bellies. Jesus tells them over and over and over again, no, 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 no. My will is not to feed you and to make you an established kingdom. This world is passing away and all the desires that come with it. Believe on me and I will give you an everlasting inheritance that's up there. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. If your treasure is here, then you have never lifted your eyes for salvation. But if your eyes are up there, then the fullness of the inheritance of the promise is yours. That Christ died to establish for you through the forgiveness of your sins. But in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Can this not be more clear? You need to get it out of your head. I made a profession of faith when I was six, but now I can just eat, drink, and be merry because I'm secure, because I prayed that prayer. But what does the person who truly has put their faith in Christ look to? The person who is look, truly looks to the things of God. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. How much more clear can the Bible be? If you have the prerogative of Satan upon your life, again, let me reestablish this. That's not all just defeating sin. It's something that can be as simple as food. As an example of just, all I care about is here, on this world, in this world. All I care about is on this planet. I look at the fields that are white to harvest, like literally, not spiritually. Then the love of the Father is not in him. Because if you're associating yourself with the world, well, this is what happens to the world. 
for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father. But if that's what defines you, likewise, you are not from the Father. It's not from the Father, but what? It's from the world. And what's going to happen to the world? And the world is passing away. And all of the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So the sin that's plaguing you and me is not necessarily sins of drugs and alcohol and adultery and all these types of things. The sins that are plaguing us don't even really look like sins most of the time. It's taking the prerogative of Satan upon ourselves, of simply pouring every single little ounce of our affections into stuff that associates with this verse, and the world is passing away. The world is passing away. It's everything that you put your affection in, is it something that's going to pass away? But he who does the will of God abides forever. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, so anybody who claims Christ is Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have, have we not prophesied in your name? And done many wonders in your name? And then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus is also making it very clear here. Just because you made a profession of faith doesn't mean you're God's. Just because you claim faith in Jesus, in some obscure sense of the, of the, uh, the term, by no means means that you're God's. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now this is not telling you that your works are saving you. This is telling you that if you're truly, through counting the cost of discipleship, putting your faith in Jesus, that comes with a life that follows. You're truly saved when you profess Christ sincerely and truly because Christ died to save you. Your works did not die to save you. Christ died to save you. But when you accept that redemption, remember, I am bought with a price. That's what redemption means. I'm bought. I am purchased. I am set free from slavery and made somebody else's. Therefore, I glorify God with your bodies, which are His. You become not your own. I am not my own. I am bought with a price. I am not saved so that I can live in the self-will of myself. And just be, set, be confident that all is well. All will be well. God saved me. I'm confident that I'm going to go to heaven so I can just do whatever I want, knowing that it'll all be okay in the end. I can eat, drink, and be merry, knowing that it's all going to be fine. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God redeems you from slavery and makes you his own. So that you can do his will. He saves you and he bleeds you out of sin. He forgives it all. But then you, progressively, 
Not everybody's perfect at the point that they're converted to Christ. But you will follow Jesus. You will take up your cross. You will lay aside your self-will. Not that we're never tempted. Not that we never fall. Not that we can't be distracted. But we will have the overwhelming disposition of following the will of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36 says, For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. You have need of endurance. What is endurance? It's not giving up. Keep going. Don't give up. You have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. We receive that after we die. So the implication here is you're enduring throughout your life. Like I said, not that there are never any hiccups. Because we're not perfect still. Christ was perfect for us because God already knew that we couldn't be perfect. Okay, So that's not the burden that is on your shoulders. Because Christ bore that burden. We must endure so that after we have done the will of God, we may receive the promise without falling away. And in the afternoon service, since we're running out of time and I don't have time to talk about all this, we're going to kind of apply this allegorically. Because Paul shows us in Ephesians chapter 5 that our marriage with our spouse is actually allegorical to our unity with Christ. And he gives us some examples of how that plays out in the setting aside of the personal will. So we're going to kind of apply this allegorically like Paul applies it allegorically in Ephesians chapter 5. Seeing how in the world our marriages exemplify what we've been talking about today. The setting aside of self-will so that we can operate as one with our spouse. Just like we are supposed to operate as one with Christ. We're going to look at that tonight after lunch and I hope you can stick around because I think that there's going to be a lot of important applications for us to take away, both in confidence in our Lord and Savior, a rejuvenation of our passionate pursuit of the will of God, and being able to apply some things in our marriage that perhaps we've let fall by the wayside. So please stick around for that, but if you're not going to be able to do that, I just want you to understand, don't get too comfortable, because... If you are living for the sake of comfort, then you are living for that which will perish. And we've seen many warnings in Scripture that if you are not seeking after the will of God as the overwhelming disposition of your life, then you should be worried. You should be worried. Please, if you're worried, come and talk to me. I would love to talk to you about it so that you can have the confidence that God wants you to have that you are saved, that you are Christ's, that you have an inheritance stored up for you in heaven. I'd love to sit down and have a conversation with you sometime this week or next week or whenever works for you. But if you have been listening to these things and you are worried, don't let that worry just get stuck under the rug. Don't just put it in your closet and forget about it because it sounds too hard. It sounds too... I don't. We don't like to be ashamed of ourselves. We don't like to feel guilty. We don't like to feel weak or um, vulnerable. 
But in this case, if you shove it to the side, it could have eternal implications for your soul. So please, I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm not trying to threaten you. I'm just showing you from Scripture that this is far deeper of a situation than we often give it credit for. So if you are worried, then let's talk about this. I'd love to talk to you about this. I will make sure it happens that we sit down and we talk about this. Um, Because there's a lot of us, I think, that we can go for decades doing some churchy things here and there. But then the overwhelming prerogative of our life is just flesh. Just flesh. That's the prerogative of Satan, and that's what he uses to bind you, to deceive you. Satan is okay allowing you to have this, have weekly church attendance, as long as you're distracted from the true will of God. Satan is okay with you doing some churchy things, as long as the rest of your life is useless. He still has you bound. In fact, your church going might be further his deception upon your soul. Because you think that, hey, I've been consistently going to church for five decades. How could I not be saved? And you fall into the snare of the devil. So if you want to talk about this, let me know. You can go through the website and contact me there. If you already have my information, please contact me. But I want to talk to you guys about this. If you are having some doubts, having some worries, let's talk about it. Let's be dismissed. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. I thank you for the eternal life that you offer freely to us. Thank you for being our benevolent Lord who loves us, who gave himself for us, who owed us nothing, who had, who could not be judged if you were to just... Kill everyone at the, all at once. You could not be judged for your actions because there is nobody who is above you that could judge you. But yet you do not take that as liberty to do as you please with us. No. Rather, in your sovereignty and in your justice and in your love, you go out of your way to lay aside your, your throne, your glory, to come here, to suffer to be tempted, and to die for us when you had no need to do that. But your love said something different. Your love said, I need to do this. Your power, your authority did not distract you from loving us. Rather, they were the tools by which your love was fully displayed on the cross for us. And Lord, help us to stand in awe of this, that we, not, we may not always cower under a God who is constantly angry with us, but be free to abide in a God who loves us and accepts us and wants us to come to you. I thank you for this. Thank you for being who you are and not being a God that could be, I suppose, in a manner of speaking. Give us full assurance of our hope in the heavens. Otherwise, Lord, may you lead us there if we have it not today. In Jesus' name, amen.